Well, Jimmy Buffett died this past week, as you know, but I'm actually going to quote from a different Buffett, Warren Buffett. He said this a few years ago. He said, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. Here, Warren Buffett says that anyone's reputation can quickly take a hit and to act always with integrity. Otherwise, a whole career can be ruined easily, no matter the effort that is made over the years. And so this passage that we're going to look at today from Joel chapter 1, verses 5 through 20, teaches us that God wants us to feel badly for our sin. How about that? You don't hear that from a lot of pulpits, right? God actually wants us to experience true guilt. Not false guilt, because that's destructive. But he wants us to experience a healthy dose of guilt when we have made a bad choice. The context of the book of Joel is that Israel was quite prosperous in the 9th century B.C., most likely when the book of Joel was written, around 830 B.C. It was prosperous, but it was far from loyal to its covenant god, Yahweh. Israel's faith was just ritualistic. It was a religion without any heart associated with it. And so God sent a shot across its bow. There was a locust infestation. You could say it was a small day of the Lord. Day of the Lord used in the Old Testament as well as future time from our perspective is a period of time when God is actively working and his work is very obvious. And it's a time when God punishes his enemies and then also disciplines and restores his own people. That's what a day of the Lord is. And so Joel promised a greater catastrophe if Israel did not change its mind, if they did not change their ways. There would be another catastrophe just around the corner. And so chapter 1 is all about the locust infestation that Israel had just experienced in real time in the first four verses of Joel chapter 1. But then in the second chapter, the event that dominates is a future day of the Lord. It is when the northern kingdom of Israel is swallowed up by a foreign power called Assyria. And Joel is telling the entire nation, Israel and Judah, repent of your ways, change your attitude, shift your behavior, and worship God with your heart and not just with your mind. Not ritualistically. Give God your heart as well. You're already God's people, but he wants to know you. He wants to interact with you. He wants to fellowship with you. Don't just give him your mind. Don't just give him your thoughts and your money. Give him your heart as well. That's what he really wants. And so the northern kingdom would be swallowed up by Assyria in, from Joel's perspective, in about a 100 years. So basically the prophecy is written in 830, but then is partially fulfilled as far as chapter 2, about a 100 years later in 722 B.C. And then in the far distant future, God will allow another day of the Lord. This is what I call the big D, capital D, day of the Lord. And that's when things really go down. That is when God's enemies 
Those who reject him, who reject his salvation, who want nothing to do with him, that is when they are rightfully judged by God in the middle point of the tribulation period, all the way through the millennial period, and God's people are restored, but also disciplined. They're redirected as well. And that is chapter 3. That is that prophecy. That is from our time frame, still yet in the future, of course. So the day of man would end. And there would be successive days of the Lord when God would be very active and his actions would be apparent. Everybody would agree. God is working. God's doing things. He's disciplining us. He's redirecting us. But he's also in that same movement restoring us to himself. And so the Lord would discipline and restore. But since Israel was God's covenant people, he would act firmly but also very graciously to her. And now Joel is inviting Israel to do what? He's inviting Israel to not be happy, to not be fulfilled, to not be successful, but he's actually inviting Israel to mourn. In fact, he's doing more than just inviting them. He's actually commanding them to mourn. And so because the locust invasion has devastated your way of life, and this, this is something that's really countercultural. Every culture is in some way completely opposite to the word of God. And this is a really good example on how American and even Western culture is oppositional to the word of God. It's going in a different direction. Okay. Because Americans, we want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be successful. That's who we are. That's the way the rest of the world knows us. My my relatives in Denmark say, I can always spot Americans a hundred yards away because they're all wearing t-shirts and they're always laughing. <laughs> they say. And so we want to be happy. We want to be successful. We want to be filled with joy. And here, uh, Joel, the prophet, is telling Israel, I want you guys to be sad and I want you to experience true guilt. I want you to mourn. What? The Bible is telling us to do that. And for Israel, that was the case. Because they were guilty, so they should be experiencing true guilt. So be sad, because the locust invasion has devastated your way of life. And so there were three groups of people that he used as an example to show how far this locust infestation had devastated Israeli life. The first group were heavy consumers of wine. The second group were farmers, and the third group were priests. So look what, look what um, verses 5 through 13 tell us. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has a teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are mourning those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. 
Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm tree, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field, all dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you, you who minister before the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth. You who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Agriculture was absolutely devastated. And it affected everybody. It affected those who were not that spiritual and those who were ideally spiritual, the drunkards and the priests and the farmers in between all suffered because of this massive massive devastation, this shot across the bow. Israel, if you listen, if you repent, if you turn from your ways, you're not going to experience the natural consequences of your really bad choices. But if you stay the course, if you don't adjust, if you don't do a course correction, you will experience greater catastrophe and calamity. And so now is the time to change. You've already experienced the first little D-Day of the Lord, the locusts invasion and it's really bad but it's going to get much worse receive and listen to and heed the shot across the bow agriculture was hit hard and it affected wine drinkers people who were you could say alcoholics because the vineyards were gone they didn't have their 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 vines anymore they didn't have their grapes to make into wine and this this is interesting because Really, as far as this tiny book of Joel, only three chapters, from Joel's perspective, this is the only real behavior that he criticizes is an overuse of alcohol. Pretty interesting. And uh, some of the other Old Testament prophets, they criticized an overuse of alcohol as well. For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, 11 and 12, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. It's not just the wine itself, but it is the behavior of an overuse of alcohol, of what it leads to. Who cares about what God has to say? A dull mind becomes the order of the day calloused feeling toward God. Who cares, really? I just want to have fun. I just want relief from my stress. And that really is at the heart of why people fall into alcoholism and drug use. But the other Old Testament prophets also criticize an overuse of alcohol. Amos and, and Hosea, and of course more in Isaiah, criticize alcohol use as well, or an overuse of it at least. Israel at this time was quite wealthy, and so there was plenty to go around, of course, before the locust invasion hit. In fact, they found archaeological evidence in Samaria, which is kind of the midpoint in Israel. Um, Just a few years ago, they found lots of payment receipts for massive quantities of grain, for large amounts of grapes and other produce as well. So Israel at this time was really wealthy. They were doing quite well, thank you. And that is probably 
the means by which they moved away from God. Oh, they still worship God. Fine. I mean, as far as everything looked from the outside, they still were devoted to doing the sacrifices and the worship and the prayers and giving their tithes and offerings. All those things were happening just fine. But less and less their hearts were in it because they just wanted to have fun. They just wanted to have relief. They just wanted to be externally happy. And so they did what they needed to do in order to experience that high. Someone wrote that their later contemporaries, Isaiah and Micah, also continued to denounce the wine-drinking habits of the people, complaining that this evil practice had infected every area of life and all levels of society and that it had led to gross spiritual failure. And so Joel doesn't pull any punches. He calls them drunkards. But then also there were the farmers too. They should despair because their vines, their pomegranates, their apple trees all dried up. There wouldn't be any fruit in the short term. And for the length of time it takes to grow a mature apple tree or pomegranate tree, it's going to be years before agricultural production would return to its pre-locust days. And then there were the priests. These were the men who were devoted to offering the sacrifices, but they couldn't do that anymore. They were affected by the locust infestation too because there was no grain or wine or olive oil to use in their sacrifices to God. So every strata of society was affected. And so what does Joel the prophet say they should do? They should mourn. They should be sad. They should be, they should be in despair. They should feel badly. They should suffer because Joel would be thinking, I want it to affect your spiritual muscle memory. I want it to sink in. I want it to marinate on your souls, this experience of loss. So that way you remember that you should not sin. Wow, that's something that's quite countercultural to our experience, but that's the word of God. It cuts through cultures. We should recall our losses due to sinful decisions. We shouldn't try to forget everything uh, because natural consequences are sometimes the best teachers. In fact, for children, we know this to be true. Uh, we have the concept of the helicopter parent, you know, that wants to do everything possible to protect their little darlings from any loss or negative experience. And so I'll hover over you and protect you. I'll form a shield to protect you from the evil world and other mean people who don't believe that you are the center of the universe. You know. But adults are the same. We need to learn through natural consequences as well. And so that's what essentially in modern contemporary terms, Joel is wanting Israel to experience. And the reason is because if you don't, there's going to be another day of the Lord. And then there's even going to be a bigger one after that. So you've got to change your ways. If you can learn when the stakes are relatively low, you won't suffer greater loss in the future. I can remember uh, when I was probably around eight years old, which, all things considered, was really not that long ago, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, my older sister, who's a year and a half older than me, so she was about nine or ten at that point, she had this terrible habit of like leaving stuff everywhere. So we would go to the store and she'd leave her jacket there or her hat in the store and and then we'd come home and my mother would say, where's your, where's your jacket? Oh, I left it at the store. Oh, great. So this would repeat itself over and over again. Then one time my father and sister and I went to, I think it was Woolworths, because I remember sitting at a counter. Remember those? Uh, some of you don't remember. Come on. Some of you remember we sit at a counter. I remember some some counter in a, rest, in a department store somewhere. And so you go back and get a Coke or an ice cream or something like that. And so there was my father and my sister and I. And my sister had this little pink plastic wallet. Do you remember those? Ladies, gals, did you ever have one of those little pink, maybe had Barbie on it or whatever, you know, little pink plastic wallet. And she placed it and she had money in it. And she placed it on one of the stools next to her. And I saw it, and I knew my father saw it. And I was like, and he was like, no, don't say anything. And so we left, and she lost her little pink wallet, pink plastic wallet, right? And um, after that, she never lost anything again. Because my father allowed her to experience the natural consequences. And was she sad? Oh, she was crying. She was upset, of course. She lost her wallet and money that was contained within. And But she learned her lesson. He allowed her to experience natural consequences and also experience the emotions afterwards. And she learned her lesson. Allowing children to suffer natural consequences and not rescuing them so they can learn is a good thing. The same principle applies to adults. Natural consequences are the best way to discipline, to correct, and redirect. God uses the same methodology. God wants us to learn by lament. Feel the pain. Learn the hard way. Do not deny or cover up your emotions. The command is to feel the pain. Joel teaches the reader to do something, to avoid something, and now he'll teach Israel and us by application to not just avoid something, but then also to do something positive that will strengthen your spiritual guts. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Well, experience natural consequences, but then how do you look at it? How you apply this because this is written to israel it's not written to the church directly but you can apply this i think at least two levels first you can apply it nationally because god will deal with nations he will deal with every nation that exists now he dealt with previous nations and so he'll deal certainly with israel he'll deal with edom he'll deal with moab egypt Libya, all those nations that existed then, and he'll deal with nations now. So it can be applied at one level. Have we paid attention to the shots across the bow as a nation? Probably not. I remember 9-11. I remember the financial crisis of 2008. I certainly remember COVID. Shots across the bow. Turn to me. Change your ways. Remember who the Lord is. I remember right after 9-11, we had a prayer service, the it was in the other building. It was packed out. It wasn't too hard to pack out that building, but we had it packed out. And I remember Deandra Jarb was saying, remember that? You sent me an email 
Pastor John, we need to have a prayer service. Totally agree. We had a prayer service that night. But then, not just us, but everybody seemed to kind of forget it. Everybody seemed to like downplay 9-11 as time went on. Everybody at the time was saying, oh, this is definitely a page, a page turner. This is definitely a pivot for America. But I don't know if it really turned out to be that, that way. We didn't pay attention to it spiritually at the very least. In every na- nation in the world, you just do a quick survey of all the major nations, they are all struggling. They're all dealing with major crises. So look at China. China has about 1.4 billion people. About one out of four or one out of five or six people in the world are Chinese. And because of their one-child policy that started back in the 1980s and continued on for many years, there are a lot fewer Chinese women of childbearing age than there are men. In fact, there's well over 30 million Chinese men who have no hope of marrying one, another Chinese woman. And so their population is going to decline. In fact, some sociologists say that by the turn of the century, just in 77 years, the Chinese population is going to be about half of what it is now. A nation in decline. Japan has been in decline for years in terms of its population. It's not, they're not reproducing fast enough. It's a nation that's very elderly. Russia's struggling. They're involved in a quagmire in Ukraine. And they have lots of other struggles too. India is dealing with repression of religious minorities. It's a nation that is, is a, it's a large population, but it's quite divided. And they have a very hyper-nationalistic government as well, and there's a lot of religious oppression, especially against Christians. The United States, we have our own struggles. We are in massive debt, debt like we've never been in. Even in World War II, we're in more debt than we were then in terms of percentage of our gross domestic product. We're headed down a wrong path in a lot of ways. Do we pay any attention to shots across the bow? No. So this could be applied nationally, but I think probably the better application is to apply it individually as well for our own lives. Do we feel hurt for what we've done, what we've thought, what we've said, our attitude? Um, Is that developing into a pattern in our life? Not necessarily big stuff I'm talking about. I'm talking about a lot of little stuff, too, that accumulates. He's teaching Israel to remember, to recall, to feel. But now there's a pivot. Now there's a shift. Now he's not only telling Israel to avoid something, but he's also telling Israel to do something positive and proactive. It's both and. Don't do this. Remember what you did. Don't forget it. But then also I want you to do some things too as well. Don't just stop sinning. I want you to also do things. Look at verses 14 through 20 say. He says, declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. What a dreadful day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. 
Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. I love that line. (laughs) The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down. The grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because there are, they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call for fire has devoured the open pastures and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. So he reinforces the negative feel of recent sin, but he also wants them to replace that sin pattern with positive habits. Stop doing something, but start doing some other things. I want you to fast. I want you to worship. I want you to summon your leaders and follow them. I want you to pray. In the Old Testament, it was, it was very typical for people to fast. And their reason to fast in the Old Testament was in response to calamities and to demonstrate humility and repentance. That's definitely in this category. So that was Old Testament fasting. As you know, fasting is when you stop eating for a period of time. Some of you fast now and then, and you share your stories of fasting with me, and I appreciate that a lot. The longest I've ever fasted is just two days. I mean, I can't make it more than that. I was I was in bad shape. <laughs> Some people can fast for multiple days, even weeks. It's amazing. But in the Old Testament, fasting was done mostly in response to calamities and to demonstrate humility and repentance. But then in the New Testament, there were three reasons for fasting. The first reason was for sorrow and mourning. It's why weren't the disciples fasting? When things were good, there was no need to fast. But in times of trouble when their Savior would be gone, then they would fast. But for now, we're not going to fast. But then there's a second reason for New Testament fasting as well, and it is for an intense spiritual need when there's a need, and uh, that is your spiritual response. I'm just going to shut down eating because I want to focus in on what God is doing. Jesus did that in the wilderness for 40 days. Saul, right after He became Paul, fasted for three days. So the first reason is for sorrow and mourning. The second reason is for an intense spiritual need. So you can focus, so you can show God in a real tangible way. I I mean business about this. This is coming from my soul, God, so I'm going to shut down the intake of food. Then the third reason for fasting in the New Testament is when God is about to do something big. Man, maybe we should all start fasting. When God is about to do something big. The motive for fasting is also really important as well, because you don't want to fast with the wrong motive. Oh, virtue signaling. You know, look how spiritual I am. That's what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. 
because they would put makeup on. They would dishevel their appearance. So that way people would say, oh, look how look how spiritual that Pharisee is because he's fasting and he's he's, he's tormenting his own body. Wow, I, man, I want to be like that. You know, well, then they were fakes. At least many of them were. So our motive for fasting is also really important. So here uh, he says, declare a fast. The second thing he says is go worship, uh, call an assembly. And you might say, well, that's just something that I can do by myself. No, no, this is another example where Scripture totally contrasts with our culture. I mean, Americans are the most independent people of all the world. And then on top of being Americans, we're also Texans. (laughs) Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. (laughs) I'm a Texan. You know, well, I was a New Jerseyan, you know, but now I'm a Texan. I've been here longer in Texas than we've been in New Jersey. It's kind of interesting. You know, I I grew up in the state with the lowest self-esteem. And then moved to the state with the highest self-esteem. <laughs> Skipped all the other 48 in between. I went from the lowest to the highest. Man, we had the Texas flag everywhere. I remember my niece and nephew came from New Jersey and they said, man, you have your, you have your flag everywhere. We don't even know what the state flag of New Jersey looks like, but we, we definitely know what the Texas flag looks like. The Lone Star. That's for sure. I'll tell you that. So we are to call an assembly. We're actually Supposed to physically be with each other. It's the group. It's the community. It's the ecclesia. It's important. It is vital that we be with one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, do not forsake the assembling with one another. And you know what that word assembling means in the Greek? It means to come together in one place physically with other people. Just saying, it's important that we be together because we want to love each other. We want to build one another up. And sometimes maybe we want to even challenge one another on some things. Don't be offended at that. It should be done out of love. Hopefully it's being communicated that way. But that's what happens in a healthy body. And so call an assembly together. Summon the elders And what do the elders do when they get there? Well, they tell you the true reality of things, hopefully, and then they lead. They do what they're supposed to do. They lead. And so then do another thing that's totally counterintuitive to our culture. Actually voluntarily submit to them. What? (laughs) This is all biblical stuff. And then fourth, cry out to the Lord. Pray. Oh, wow. You know, there's... What is, what is prayer? Prayer is simply talking to God. That's all it is. There are two major types of prayer, eight specific types, but two major categories. Prayer is either telling God something or it's asking God for something. There are different types of prayer. Expand your repertoire of prayer. I wonder if God gets bored with our prayers sometime. You know, be persistent in your prayer, but... Maybe use some creativity in what you say to God. Yeah. And then there's different types of prayer that are rarely used, but they're very biblical. For example, there's, there's complaint. 
What? You mean I can actually complain to God? Yeah, read Lamentations and Hosea. There's a lot of complaint in there. It's a type of prayer. Wow. And this might actually help our marriages too because now you don't have to complain to your wife all the time. You can complain to the creator and sustainer of the universe. And the better thing is he can do something about your complaint. She's just going to tune you out. Do I hear any amens from this area over here of our blessed congregation? She says, amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's, there's different types. There's narrative. I, narrative is one of my favorite types of prayer. And you can see this in, in um, uh, like Daniel and other books of the Bible as well. It's mostly in the Old Testament where basically what we're reporting is just what's happening down here. And it's a conversation with God. God. I know you already know this because you are omniscient and omnipresent. You're everywhere. But I just want to let you know about my experience, what I'm seeing filtered through my personality and my identity. I'm just going to let you know, give you a ground report. That's another type of prayer. And it's conversation before you know it, you're praying for 10 or 20 minutes. So God wants us to pray, and Joel tells Israel, I want you to stop doing some things, and I want you to start doing some things. One of the things that you need to do is pray. You need to talk to God. Another prayer, too, that's infrequent and should be more frequent is confession. Israel had a lot to confess about. So what does the word confession mean? It means to agree with God about something. It could be your sin, or it could be doctrine. It could be truth. It could be biblical truth that we reflect back to God. I mean, he knows it already. He wrote it. He came up with it. But wow, how he loves to hear that from the lips of his children. Don't you love to hear truth from the lips of your children? Ah, Yes, I do. Give God that pleasure also. God, I love the fact that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. I love that. I've always enjoyed that truth. You are Father, Son. You are triune. You are three in one. It's the only perfect relationship that's ever existed. And you've always existed. And you've always loved each other as well. The Father, or the the Spirit, wants to glorify the Son, and the Son wants to glorify the Father. And you've always adored one another and been committed to one another. So I know that because you've always existed, that means that love has always existed. I confess that back to you, God. I love, I enjoy it. Allow yourself to enjoy truth. Let's sink deep into your emotions and your soul. See, that'll change you. Reflect. Think about things. We don't like to think. Thinking takes work. Thinking takes effort. But we are called to think. As a man thinks, so he is. Think of yourself as dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. Think. Consider. Ponder. Reflect. Meditate. Do those things that are counterintuitive to our natural desire to just rest and seek relief from the stresses of life. So in verse 19, he says, uh, It is to you, O Lord, that I call out. The barrenness of the land is reflected by the dryness and decay of people's hearts. 
It was a phenomenal audiovisual of the land devastated by locusts, denuded of anything green, and then as a result, vulnerable to fires. So the pastures were ruined as well, even though there were no trees there. But the locusts had devastated everything, and so whatever was left over burned up with the first lightning strike. What a great audiovisual. What a great metaphor. What an illustration. God is basically saying, your hearts are like the land. They're dry and absent of any life. Do something about it. Know God. Know who He is. Stop your old behavior. Feel the consequences of that behavior so you're less likely to repeat it. But I want you to fast. I want you to worship. I want you to follow direction. I want you to pray. Don't just mourn. Use the spiritual disciplines to draw your hearts to the Lord. So we should let those losses strengthen our resolve to better follow Him and not repeat the sin cycle. See, it's a lot more than just not doing sin. It has to be replaced by the spiritual disciplines that are not an end to themselves, but a means to an end of knowing him, to know Christ better and make him known. Uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote, God didn't have to send great battalions to Judah to bring the people to their knees. All he needed was a swarm of little insects, and they did the job. Sometimes, and he wrote this, what I'm about to read, he wrote this pre-COVID. He says, sometimes he uses bacteria or viruses so tiny that you need a special microscope to see them. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. He is the Almighty, and none can prevent the movement of his powerful hand. See, Is there a shot across the bow in your life that you need to respond to? Is there a destructive pattern that maybe has not taken hold yet, but might just do that unless you change direction? Just not sinning is not enough, but strengthen that new positive spiritual pattern by actually following God. By actually doing the things that he commands us to do. Fast, worship, submit, follow, pray. You see, the great thing about the book of Joel is that ultimately it ends positively because they are God's covenant people. There's a relationship there that they could not alter even if they wanted to because the Abrahamic covenant was unilateral. It was all on God's shoulders. He did everything. He made Israel his people. Now the Mosaic Covenant was conditional, but the Abrahamic Covenant was unconditional. So there's nothing that they could do to destroy that relationship, but there was a whole lot that they could do to hurt the fellowship. That's exactly what Israel did repeatedly. And that's what you and I could possibly do as well. So just not sinning was not enough. I want you to also actively, positively, proactively, intentionally follow God. See, see, we are his covenant people, not Abrahamic covenant, but new covenant. He wants to bless and not blast us. He wants to pardon his enemies and not punish them. He wants to win us by love 
and not wound us by the lashings of his discipline. That's who our God is. He wants to restore us and know us well. So make good choices. Get rid of the bad decisions and grab onto the good ones. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for who you are and who you're in the process of making us to be. So we trust you with that. We um, look at Scripture and we allow Scripture to overwhelm our cultural experiences, our family dynamics, every other force and pattern maker in our lives. We submit to Scripture ultimately. And so, Father, help us to see Scripture, help us to comprehend it, and help us to apprehend it. Help us to understand it and employ it into the innermost parts of our souls. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen.